Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here together today at First Christian Church. Welcome to every one of you here in the West Auditorium. We're very glad you're with us. Those who are in the East, we're glad you're with us, and also in Lovington, our friends and brothers and sisters down there, and to everybody who's watching online. Welcome to worship, and particularly welcome to some time looking around and looking at what Scripture has to say about our lives together. So uh, my name is Wayne. If you're a guest with us today, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. It's pretty way through the Bible. There's one in the pew rack in front of you here in the west, and same in Lovington. In the east, there's some people moving around, or maybe you want to catch it on your smartphone. There's a great app that you might consider using called Uversion, and uh, we use it a lot around here, so if you need to find a way in which to get the Bible on your phone, you might try the, the app called Uversion. So while you're looking for Hebrews chapter 3, um, some of you may be aware that uh, Leslie and I spent a long time in Tulsa, Oklahoma, before we moved to Decatur. We went to school, then went to college. We met while in college. We got married while we were in college. We had two years yet left in our college career, if you will, when we got married. Then we went overseas for a number of years. And when we were overseas uh, in Europe, in Eastern Europe and Africa, our home office was in Tulsa. And then after we came back from overseas, we worked in Tulsa for another eight and a half years. I pastored a church. Leslie taught at the university, and so we know the community over there quite well. There's a small town about 45 minutes outside of Tulsa. It's a long way from here, nine, 10 hours if you're going to drive it at a leisurely, place, leisurely pace. It's also about nine or 10 hours from Houston, yet uh, there would appear at first glance as you come into this little town called Wingenham that something from Houston got stuck in Wingenham, namely something from the Houston Space Center somehow they made itself to Wingenden. If you drive into town on the road, uh, coming to that little village, there's a space capsule that appears it's from Houston stuck on the side of the road. It went there in 1959, and the town has had it ever since. And you wonder why hasn't Houston come and collected it since then? That's a long time ago. It's there today. Well, there's a little bit more to the story. Here's the rest of the story. In 1959... The local county office got involved in lake development of Lake Uluga. Lake Uluga is this very long lake in northeastern Oklahoma, and the only way you could get across the lake was to go around it. If you wanted to go from one side to the other, it was a long drive around. So the county officials, along with all kinds of government people, said, let's build a bridge across the lake. Now, if you're going to build a bridge across the lake, engineering scientists tell us that that requires a lot of concrete. Well, in 1959, a cement truck was traveling on the way to the, to the bridge site, and it ran off the road. Now, you know they have those buckets that go round and round, like, right, to keep the cement pliable. Well, it went off the road. The bucket stopped turning. By the time the wrecker got there, the cement had set. And they removed the truck and said, we'll come back for the bucket. That was in 1959. They've never come back yet. <laughs> Sat there on the side of the road for more than 50 years until 2011, a couple of local artists realized that this mixer was about the same size and shape as a space capsule. So with a little bit of paint and some creative stenciling, suddenly Wengenen has a tourist site. Go and see what appears to be a space capsule, when in fact it's a cement bucket with a lot of set cement in it. It's cool, 
But it's also deceptive in the sense that you, if you're not aware that that's there and you're driving down the road, wouldn't you stop and go, what's with that right there, okay? We're kind of used to fake stuff in our culture a little bit. You know, we, we think something is what it looks like and then we learn it's not really what it is. And we know about fake things that come our way. We get fake emails, phishing for that or the other. We get fake phone calls that are really web-based robocalls. And supposedly your insurance company says that you haven't paid your premium on time. Have you ever had one of those? Or your credit card company calls and says, hey, we'd like to offer you a new rate. And you go, I don't own, have a credit card with you guys. Or the IRS calls and says the agents are on their way. Sounds scary, right? The IRS doesn't do that. Or you get a call from the prison saying your mother's there and she needs money. Maybe you've had that. All of it is not true. And, and partly, there, we, 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 kinda, we don't like that, but we do like some things that are fake. Like, for example, a few years ago, I saw this photo of this phenomenal, phenomenal castle set on an island. And I, I wondered for years how they got it there. Well, they got it there through Photoshop. It's not really there. Here's where it really is on the ground, and somebody just stuck it on top of that island with a photo. Or a few months ago, I saw this photo and thought about this. What's with the cow on the BMW? And I, I didn't realize it was fake at the time. I'm thinking, that's very strange. How did that cow get up there in the first place? Why, I'm, I'm thinking, is it because it was the hood warm? I have, well, it's a fake. Here's the cow in its real setting. You can see they just stuck it there. Or well, one more that might get your attention. When I saw this photo, I thought, that is some incredible pilot able to put his hand out the window. Fly. I mean, that's a, that's a big jet. That's going 250 miles an hour. And the wind's not really messing with him or anything. Well, it's because it's fake, because this is really the photo. And they just stuck the clouds on it. My point of all this, sometimes with humor, people will try to trick us. They'll try to you know, fake us out. But some fakes, though, are not so humorous. There are some settings where criminals use fake language and situations for their own greediness. And we see it, we see it across the whole culture. We see it in every industry. Sadly, including the church, capital C. We know of settings of late here in our own country, and for that matter, around the world, where fake leaders of church get involved in downright sinful actions, and it's brought great disrepute to those of us who call ourselves Christians. And so the question becomes, what are we supposed to do? How should we manage, um, how should we manage church life to the point where we, we say, we can trust those who are in charge, and we can hold those who are in charge to account, and do life right together with some mutual accountability? That's our intent today, and as we do sort of answer those questions, we're going to carry on with the series that we started last week, looking at the book of Hebrews, a chapter-by-chapter -chapter walk through Hebrews that will take us through the end of July. And I want to remind you, if you um, belong to our texting service, then each Sunday afternoon, you'll get a study guide that will come your way that will carry you through a day or two in the week ahead. And if you're not part of that, you can simply text the words First Decatur, one word, to 24587, and you'll get that study guide each Sunday afternoon at 4.30. If you're not into texting and all that sort of stuff, there are paper copies available at the welcome desk. So let's see, with all of that as an introduction, let's see what Hebrews 3 might have to say about fake leadership. The writer says, holy brothers and sisters, verse 1, 
Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, and so there's going to be this comparison back and forth between Jesus and Moses. So verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was, a faith, was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. So Moses, he's saying, is, was... Um, when the work that Moses was doing was kind of like a foreshadowing. Uh, the, the, the biblical language we, or theological language we use, he was a type. He was an example, an illustration of what was to come. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So I would suspect you're wondering, okay, this is about two leaders, Moses and Jesus, but what does this have to do with leadership that can be trusted in a local congregation? Well, it's obviously about these two guys, leaders who have gone by, and while the, the pastor says, while Moses was really great, Jesus was even greater. And is a, they're saying there's some disparity between the two. Now, that's different than um, other situations that we have these days where people wonder who is the better. Who was the best person? Who did the best? Who ran the best race? So, are you familiar with what happened on Jeopardy lately? This guy that won two million dollars and was like amazed everybody. His name is James Holzhauser. Well, let me give you a little background. Fifteen years ago, there was a guy by the name of um, Ken Jennings who won a little more than two million dollars in seventy-four episodes. He won seventy-four games in a row, and that was like, man, no one's ever going to do that until just this year. A guy from the University of Illinois came along, James Holzhauser, and he won the same amount of money in about a third as many games. So you'd say, well, Holzhauser is probably better because he won the same amount of money in way less games, except he didn't get to 74 games. He only got to like, I don't know, about a third as many. And so you go, who's better? They both won the same amount of money. So is it the guy who won a lot of it in a very brief period of time or the guy who stayed for a very long time? It depends on who you talk to and the way in which you judge their criteria. That's figuring it out. But in the case of Jesus and Moses, particularly as Hebrews puts it, there's no debate. Jesus will always be better. So throughout this series, what we're going to see, we're going to see Jesus compared to aspects of Old Testament. Namely, last week we learned that he was better than the angels. This week we're going to learn that he's better than Moses. And in the weekends ahead, we'll see other areas of Old Testament life, if you will, where Jesus is better. And what Hebrews does, since Hebrews comes along about, this book comes along about 35 years after Jesus was alive and died and rose again and went to heaven, the writer of Hebrews has the perspective of being able to look back and see what happened before Jesus came and what happened after Jesus came. And so what the writer does is he puts Jesus in the very square center, the centerpiece of all time, saying that, well, before Jesus came along, there were a lot of things that happened. There was creation of the cosmos. There was creation of life, of humans. There was the introduction of sin into the human story. And all of that was a lead into Jesus' ministry, his life, death, and resurrection. And once all that was in play and Jesus showed up, then everything after Jesus 
is far better. And basically he puts Jesus, he divides human history into two parts, pre-Jesus, post-Jesus. Hebrew was, was written after Jesus' ministry took place. And so it describes how his, his ministry eclipsed everything that had gone on before his earthly arrival. And so it seems natural, particularly since Jesus was God then, that Hebrews would say, Jesus is a better leader than Moses. Now, that's not to bring ridicule or judgment toward Moses, because he took on something that's pretty incredible. Maybe you know his story. His story begins about mm, 15 to 1600 years before Jesus was born. He was a Jewish baby adopted by the royal priesthood, the royal, pardon me, the royal family of, Pharaoh, of uh, Egypt. Pharaoh was Egypt's dictator, and Moses was um, an adopted grandson of the dictator of Egypt. And so he grows up in a royal household. But he's also aware that he is Jewish. And his fellow Jews, he's one that's not like the rest of the Jewish people. He's living in a royal household. household. His fellow blood people are actually slaves to Pharaoh. And so there's this inner conflict within Moses. Should I follow my family's story and say I'm royalty? Or should I follow my blood family's story and figure out a way to get them free? Long story short, he chose his blood family and pretty soon a rebellion was underway led by Moses as God's representative. And here's what happened. About a million people or so were freed from Egyptian bondage. And they literally walked away from Egypt in a 40-year trek from bondage to emancipation They walked for 40 years from Egypt to the promised land, what we now call modern-day Israel. And so here's what you have. You have Moses, this prince of Egypt, with a lofty place of privilege and royalty, and he leaves that in order to bring slaves to freedom. Now, Hebrews 3 admires Moses and says, hey, what he did was great, but it points out that Jesus' leadership went far beyond Moses' role and what Moses did with the people of Israel. See, like Moses... Jesus left a lofty place of privilege. He left heaven in order to bring slaves to freedom. And in this case, Jesus' death and his resurrection, they free people from slavery to sin and the fear of death. And remember, last week we stated that Hebrews was written to Hebrew people, to Jewish Christians who feared for their lives. This is 30, 35 years after Jesus has died and gone to heaven. This is uh, 35 years or so after the resurrection. And by this time, the Roman Empire is really starting to struggle, and they don't like the Christians at all. So this is when Hebrews is being written is when Romans are being, pardon me, when Christians are being fed to lions in the Roman Colosseum in Italy. This is also a period of time when the Jewish religious zealots and groups of different Jewish groups are really opposed to Christianity. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ at the point of Hebrews, when it's being written, you're catching it from both sides, both from the Romans and also from the Jewish culture. And so they they have a substantial fear of dying for their faith. And Hebrews says, follow Jesus and he'll bring you freedom from that fear. Not that you won't die. You may very well die in the Colosseum. But you you will rise again because we follow what Jesus did. And you may recall, by the way, what happened when, um, back in Moses' time, when Moses led the slaves to freedom and they walked to the promised land. 
At various points along the way, Moses would go up on a mountain and he'd have a chat with God and he'd say to God, God, what would you have, how would you have me lead this group that I'm in charge of? And um, God would literally write down laws on stones. Do you remember what those were called? Ten Commandments, right? Moses would come down with the Ten Commandments on stone. And thus, the nation's spirituality would be set and they would figure out how to do life. It was the law of God. And Hebrews celebrates all of that. But our passage today goes a step beyond praising Moses' leadership because it states that Jesus' leadership was more powerful in the way in which the law of God is received by people today. So you have that Moses leads slaves from freedom to freedom. And Jesus leads people from sin's enslavement to freedom and grace. So at that point, it's not just a, a one-time deal to get from slavery to freedom, but it is for all people for all time. Freedom from sin and the fear of death to grace, so Jesus is greater. Moses brought God's law written on stone tablets for his people, but Jesus brings God's whole life to people through the Holy Spirit. The whole, Hebrews puts it this way, that the Holy Spirit says to us, this is the covenant I'll make with them. I'll put laws on their hearts and I'll write on their minds. So instead of the law of God being written on stone and you might get a chance to read that from time to time, now, through the coming of Jesus Christ, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, God's laws are always written on our hearts. And if that's the case, I'd say this, if that's the case, if Jesus' followers have a better leader than Moses, which we believe we do, then I suppose we should return to the questions I posed at the beginning of our time together. How is it that the church or individual congregations like ours, or ones across town or ones across the country, how is it that sometimes they end up with really bad leadership? The church is supposed to have leaders who have God's law inscribed on their hearts, which is better than it being written on stone. So why do they go astray? Or maybe this is a better way to put it. How can this church, how can First Christian Church prevent fake leadership today and in the future? In a nutshell, what's the difference between a fake leader and a leader that's following God? So I wanna give you some responses to that with this understanding. Um, maybe you're here today and this has been your church for a long time, but your job is gonna move you across the country. And you're gonna go, okay, how am I gonna, I get across the country, because when I hear from about people who move, I hear over and over again, the hardest thing to do is to find a church that they feel settled in. And it takes, you know, they go and they get a job, they get a house, they get their kids in school, and then they try and find a church, and that's really, really hard. So if you get moved across the country, if our church here changes in, in the way in which we do things, and we have different leaders, how would we determine whether or not the leaders of the congregation are men and women who follow God, with God's heart, God's, God's law inscribed upon their hearts, not just on stone. So here's some ideas, taken right from Hebrews, from the passage we just read. Ways to evaluate and determine right leadership. First of all, look to Jesus. It's quite plain from our text. In preparing to detail why Jesus is better than Moses, look at where the conversation starts. It says, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. These are the people of God. But by saying holy brothers and sisters, these are people who are in family life together. These are people who are expecting that heaven is theirs as a result of Jesus Christ. What does he say? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Start with Jesus. He is the only infallible leader who's never made any errors. 
No leader is, fallible apart, is infallible apart from Jesus Christ. You can, I mean, Moses himself made a mistake. Later on in his life, after he leads the people to, um, toward the promised land, he makes a mistake and he never gets to the promised land. The people get there without him. And there are all kinds of other leaders throughout human history that might be great leaders, we would say, or people would say, well, we expected this from them and it didn't happen. No, no leader apart from Jesus Christ is infallible. Not Moses, not Paul the Apostle. Coming to more common in uh, modern times, Abraham Lincoln made errors. Winston Churchill made errors. John Kennedy made errors. Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, they will all, all those leaders will never match the leadership quotient exhibited by Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, can I remind you in this setting today that Wayne Kent, if I could speak in the third person, is liable to error, lots of them? Every human, every human leader will make errors. Jesus was the only one who never made errors in the past, nor will he make them in the future. Now, I would suspect, and I've observed this, that when it comes to human leaders, there is a spectrum of mistakes that they might make, starting, if you will, with a simple oversight to maybe some poor planning or a poor intellectual capacity to a leadership deficit, if you will, they just can't lead properly, or then you get starting into financial errors, to people management mistakes, to eventually a willful, immoral corruption, and then finally to an illegal, willful deception. And I need to tell you, friends, I'm going to make an error somewhere along that spectrum. And if that's the case, please pray that my, my fallibility is on this end of the spectrum, okay? As a matter of fact, I, I'd really appreciate some prayers about that. And so I've got some language for you today of how you could pray for me as one of the leaders of this church. It could go something like this. Dear God, Wayne is going to mess up. Dear God, Wayne is going to mess up. Please, Lord, help us to help him keep the mistakes to a minimum. That's a cool prayer. I'd appreciate it if you'd pray for me. Because, here's what I'm aware, that all of us, you and me, as individuals, in our combined ministries, we have to be people who pray and look to Jesus first of all. I pray that I look to Jesus first of all, that you look to Jesus first of all, and all of us look to Jesus first of all. And when we look to Jesus, then we compare and look at our leaders beyond that, here's something to look for. See if you can find a mixture of passion and humility. Passion and humility. This is observed in, in the, um, both the Christian world and in the secular culture. Maybe you're familiar with a fellow by the name of Jim Collins. He wrote a book about 15, 20 years ago called Good to Great. And he had research on all kinds of companies and organizations across the United States. Successful companies, leaders that did way more than everybody expected. And he coined a term called the level five leader. He says a level five leader is the best kind of leader you can have. And a level five leader in a secular culture, in a secular setting, he says there's someone who has passion and humility. And I remember thinking when I was reading that years ago, passion and humility. It's interesting to me that secular studies indicate the best kind of leader is someone like Jesus Christ. Passion, had a great cause, a great mission, and yet humble in his approach. See, Jesus was, was, a, was God in the flesh, coming to us with a passionate mission in mind. 
Your salvation, my salvation. Jesus left his lofty place in heaven with this mission. I'm going to die on the cross so that sins can be forgiven. That's a huge, passionate mission. But then scripture says he did that by humbling himself. Philippians puts it this way. Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And he showed up looking like a human, made in human likeness. And being found and discovered in an appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's a Jesus style of leadership. That's a level five kind of leader. Passion led by humility. You want a great church leader? Look for passion and humility in a reasonable and reliable ratio. And as you're looking for that, ask this question. Does the leader know scripture and scripture's ethos? In other words, does the leader demonstrate mature Christian spirituality in his or her personal life? Both are required. If you want to be the leader of a church, um, you need to have some understanding of scripture, but then that understanding of scripture has to be applied to each individual personal life. You have, to have, you have to demonstrate, if you will, mature Christian spirituality. A bank of memorized scripture isn't good enough. A bank of memorized scripture doesn't make a person a mature Christ follower and good leader. And I've had people spout all kinds of verses at me, you know, and they got proof text for this and proof text for that. And I go, yeah, but look at the way you treat your spouse. Look at how your kids are afraid of you. Look at the way in which you conduct yourself at work. You know, the secular and Christian press have been following a mesmerizing tale coming out of Chicago in the last year. Maybe you're familiar with this story. Very, very large church, 18 to 20,000 people with satellite churches all around the Chicago area and for that matter, around the country. The preacher there is a, a man with a powerful preaching gift. He had sermons full of scriptural knowledge. And as a matter of fact, one of his video series were even used for women's study here one time but he's recently fired by his congregation's elders. Why? Well, apparently there was no moral failure in regards to sexuality, but his spirituality was really run amok. He had these sermons and this great preaching and communicating ability, and he knew the scriptures back and forwards, but his demeanor reeked of anger and privilege. He was known for making very unethical, high demands of staff, and associates, along with a penchant for all sorts of financial improprieties. To the point where um, the ECFA, which is the group that kind of looks at nonprofit organizations and we all can subscribe to to watch over our financial affairs, they dropped their accreditation of the church. He was fired. People left in droves. They had, anticip had anticipated in the first two months of um, ministry in 2019 that the income for the church would be about $3.8 million. That's a ton of money. I mean, that's more money than we would receive in an entire year. But instead of getting $3.8 million, there's thousands of people. The income was $2.6 million, a shortfall of $1.2 million in two months. What do you do when there's that sort of like 40% drop off immediately? You have to let go of staff. And once they fired him, they all discovered that the congregation was actually $40 million in debt. How are they gonna recover that? And meanwhile, the secular world looks and mocks. Is it any wonder? 
had a great gift to preach, a phenomenal understanding of scriptural knowledge, but it didn't match that with the spirituality of passion and humility. So to that end, if we're gonna evaluate Christian leaders, um, may I suggest that even as we hold them accountable, we have to hold ourselves accountable. And so to put all this in perspective, I'd suggest that if we're gonna do this well, we have to examine our own spirituality because to acknowledge that someone is in leadership in a church, like me, okay, this is being really candid today, that means that you're giving me permission to lead. But it also means that if I'm gonna be a leader, then I'm gonna have to live under submission to you as well in ways that are right and true and full of integrity. It's mutual submission. It requires a soft-hearted approach toward interpersonal relationships and towards the things of God. That's why at the beginning of the chapter, he says, brothers and sisters, it's for the community, it's for the family of God. Verse 12, he comes back to the same language. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Keep your heart pliable within the context of brothers and sisters. And as a matter of fact, if you want to know how you're doing that, he says, you should encourage one another daily. Could you guys throw that slide back up one more time, okay? See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but instead do this. Instead, encourage one another daily. Somehow or other, a heart that is open to God's care and to God's moves and to God's development is apparently also one that encourages other people daily. It's a daily basis project. It's not once every six months. Well, it's just not part of my personality to be an encourager. I just am not that, I, I, I don't do that. Well, I would say, friends, that if we're gonna be people who are in relationship together, who expect something of measurable success out of our leaders, then we have to figure out how are we demonstrating that sort of spirituality that we want in that leader, how are we demonstrating it in our own lives? And Hebrews says, well, one measure of that is how do you do when it comes to encouraging others? So I would ask you, how's that going for you? How is that? How well are you doing at encouraging others today? Or not just today, but tomorrow. Who do you have on your list? Do you have somebody on your list to say, man, when I leave church today, I'm going to send a text, I'm going to send an email, I'm going to call them up, I'm going to send a note in the mail, I, I'm put a post on Facebook, whatever. I'm going to do something today to encourage someone. As a matter of fact, I'm not only going to do it today, but I'm going to choose somebody else the next day, or maybe go back to the Sunday person on Tuesday, and I'm going to develop, as a person who's learning more of Scripture, how I'm then personally, regardless of my leadership responsibilities. I'm going to be someone who encourages. Do you have somebody in mind? As a matter of fact, in the, um, within the context of Jeopardy, remember what happens at the end of the show at Jeopardy when they have to think for a few minutes? Remember that? You know that song? There's no words to it. Here's a tidbit that I didn't tell the other services. Merv Griffin wrote this song. He's made $80 million from that song just in royalties. I should have written it. $80 million, but nonetheless. Where were we? Oh, we're gonna think, right? 
Just like they do in this show. We're going to listen to them while the music plays. We're going to think of an answer. Except this time the answer isn't for money, but this time it's for where is your spirituality and who are you going to, th- who are you going to encourage today? I'll leave you with it while you listen. Your job, who is it that you need to encourage today? Let's pray together. Lord, I'm grateful for my friends who graciously listen to me when I come before them. More importantly, God, I'm grateful for the the moments, Lord, of leadership that you've given me and I guess, Lord, I'm trying to be grateful for the mistakes I make, but maybe I learned something through that. Lord, I, I guess I can say, Father, I'm grateful that we are people who work life together and that we want our spirituality to grow in you through the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today, someone online, someone in Lovington, who doesn't know you, I pray that you would remove from them the fear of sin's penalty and the fear of death through the work of Jesus Christ. Cause them to pray a prayer that simply says, God, forgive me of my sin through Jesus Christ. I want to spend eternity with you. And then, Lord, for all of us, Give us wise and discerning eyes and ears and hearts, soft hearts toward each other. As a church, we, that we figure out how do we do leadership together and how do we live in mutual submission to one another. And part of that, Lord, is, involves our willingness to encourage each other. Lord, there are people whose names have been placed in our hearts today through the work of your Spirit. We'll take steps this week to be used of you in encouragement. We'll do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.